We opened our supply up to part-timers. They focus on full-timers. They focus on clocking 8, 10, 12 hours on, on, on a motorbike. And that was, in my opinion, quite stupid because our motorbikes are not like motorbikes in Jakarta or Ho Chi Minh City. They're not nice, comfy Hondas. They're, they're like literally flimsy, $100, $150, you know, motorbikes that look like they're from the 70s. You know, and you cannot sit on one of them for 10 hours. It's impossible. So so we bet on a supply which you only clock in a couple of hours a day. Mm-hmm. We didn't have to pay them a bonus, right? While they, while they were bleeding money, trying to make people, force people to work 10 hours, quit their jobs, yeah. you know, and pay all these crazy bonuses. So, hmm. yeah, you know, I, I think it's hard. Breaking news. Sort of. Ride-hailing giant Gojek and Marketplace Tokopedia, Indonesia's two largest startups, said a couple of days ago that they've merged their businesses to form GoTo Group, the largest technology group in the Southeast Asian nation. All this before seeking a stock market debut at home and in the United States with an expected public markets valuation targeted between 35 and 40 billion, as reported in February by Bloomberg. This sets more fuel to fire of super apps rising in Southeast Asia, a trend that is actually moving from east to west, with folks like Uber transforming itself beyond a transportation company into the operating system of our daily lives. But is this a short-lived trend? Will the Southeast Asian tech giant threaten other local players in the region? In comes my next guest, Munib Mayer, the brains behind hyper-local marketplace powered by a network of motorcycles by Kia Pakistan. With more than 17 million motorcycles, Fresh off a Series B round with millions in its pockets, Bikea is an all-in-one app for transportation, logistics, and cash-on-delivery payments reshaping the landscape of Pakistan and beyond. You don't want to miss this. Welcome to Billion Dollar Moves, the show for the top U.S. and Asia founders, funders, and execs making billion dollar moves that are shaping our future. From the growing pains of a unicorn journey to IPO, the question of impact and returns, to scaling a venture capital firm, we go real deep in the world of venture and business. Now let's get started. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are joining us from. Welcome to Billion Dollar Moves. My name is Sarah Chen, your host. And today I have with me a really special guest, an introspective entrepreneur that I've always enjoyed speaking with, whether we're on panels, whether we're, you know, speaking about different issues. I always love hearing Munib's uh, point of view. And today I'm so glad to have a power hour with him where we will be diving a little bit deeper than usual. And as I hear it, you know, on Billion Dollar Moves, we we call it no corporate BS type answer. So Munib, high expectations for you. How are you? Um, well, well, thank you for the opportunity. Totally. Well, uh, let's get started here. You know, I, I really want to understand uh, just a little bit about your journey. You've been doing a couple of things in the last couple of years. You know, this is not, as one of your investors uh, told me, this is not Munib's first rodeo. In fact, it's your third. You actually started investment banking, left because of, I believe, you know, post 9-11, it was a little bit challenging and then ended up leading the Pakistan operations for SNL, now SNP, and later going into Duraz and Bikea. And yet you say, you know, I'm not the smartest in the room. I'm not the 4.0 GPA. But what what then got you to all these different chapters? Yeah, well, so, <laughs> so, so I'm from Pakistan, right? So I grew up, I grew up here. And if you don't have a lot of money, uh, then you apply to like a hundred universities and hope that one of them is going to give you a better deal in terms of a scholarship. So that, so I, so that's how I ended up landing in the U.S. I ended up going to the college that gave me the best scholarship. <laughs> so it's a small liberal arts school in in California, Whittier College. I moved from there to another larger public school called you know University of Florida Gatorade. If you've ever had it, comes from Gators, which is their football team. In my third and fourth year, I was at University of Virginia. And the reason I moved is because, you know, I was, I, I needed to make money to pay off some debts that I had sort of collated from trying to get to college, you know. And I'd heard that investment banking makes a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so yeah, so I wanted to, wanted to graduate from college and make enough money to pay off my debt. 
So University of Virginia was one of the, I think, handful, maybe a couple of the public schools in America where investment banks come. Investment banks, strategy consulting companies come to recruit, except for the IVs, right? The IVs, that's a staple. They'll go to the Harvards and the Browns and the Yales. So yeah, so that allowed me to slot myself into these interviews. And yeah, I think, again, interviewed a lot of places. It, it's funny, I, I say it's like dating, right? Like, you know, or, 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 or trying to find the right girl, right? So, yeah. uh, so you meet a lot of them, uh, but you, it's, very, it's very seldom that you connect. But got fortunate to, to connect with some folks at Bear Stearns, joined Bear Stearns in investment banking in New York City. That was a great, great learning curve, you know, just, I think, just taught me how to work hard, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you may think you're smart, but as soon as you get into investment banking class, like you find that everyone around you is as smart, if not smarter than you, right? And so, yeah, I was there for about a year and a half or so. And, and then I hated it, you know? And mm-hmm. I wasn't probably the best investment banker anyways, because what we were doing was, at least as first-year analysts, we were basically going into quarterly and annual financial statements, pulling the data out and populating historical financials so that investment bankers could build projections. And it made no sense why you would pay someone so much money at least in the first six months to collate this data. So that got me thinking as to why, you know, you wouldn't do this in a country where labor was cheaper and you could hire a lot of people to sort of collate some of this data. On public companies, it's publicly accessible. So that got me thinking about content uh, collection. I joined a company called SNL. Mm-hmm. Um, and I joined them because I tried to make my own um, content business, but I didn't have the visa to stay on in the U.S. So I had to go join someone to, to be able to stick around in the U.S. Right. And within six months, I convinced them to outsource work to me in Pakistan. So I moved back, moved back to Islamabad, which is my hometown, and, mm-hmm. uh, and started basically hiring for their back office. And that ultimately over seven years grew to about six, 700 people and ultimately got acquired by Standard Poor's. But again, you know, I was a senior leader, I think the top 10, 15 people in the company, but that business ultimately sold uh, for almost uh, over $2 billion, you know, to Standard Poor's. So, so yeah, so, so right after that, you know, got the opportunity to, so basically I had started with a friend of mine, we started building a clone of eBay uh, for Pakistan. Mm-hmm. And we were trying to raise capital for it. And we ran into the guys at Rocket Internet. And they were like, you know, <laughs> we, we're a clone factory pretty much. You know, we've got these templates. We're not going to buy your template or your, your business. Hmm. Why don't you come run our template? And the template was basically a clone of what initially was Zalora, right? you know, from Southeast Asia or Jabong in India. And it's called the Raz and Pakistan. It was initially a fashion venture. But then very, very quickly, uh, in about a year and a half or so, it converted to a general merchandise platform. So a clone of Lazada. So right. same, I mean, you know, Rocket Internet ran Lazada, Rocket Internet. And so you get plugged in, you get this fancy title of a co-founder. You're not really a co-founder. But, you know, it's like it's like a crash course MBA. And I was, I didn't have an MBA. Like everyone at Rocket was typically, you know, an MBA from a top school, you know, I wasn't, but it was, for me, it was like an MBA, right? Just a great MBA. And, you know, Rocket Internet is a great, great university. It's, it's absolutely fantastic. And particularly if you can survive, if you can survive four years of Rocket Internet, you're That'd a dinosaur. Yeah. You're a dinosaur there, right? I mean, most high turnover, because right? the, envi- the environment is very aggressive and you, you build fast and you fail fast as well. So, so yeah, so after about four years there, kind of wanted to build something on my own for the first mm-hmm. time. So, so yes, I, you, you may look at my history and say, oh, I've had all these successes, but I've, you know, I've been sort of a leader of other people's businesses. And this is pretty much my first real business. Mm. And why, I mean, you know, I, I've, I've heard you talk about Deraz and, you know, what you've learned there as well, but ultimately you decided that 
you know, of course, you, you're talking now about how you wanted your own thing, right? Your own gig. But why Bikea? Why the idea of the opportunity of 17 million motorbikes? I mean, that's relatively different from what you started at the rise. Yeah, so I, th- I think a couple of things. One, you know, when we started marketing, we recognized that what we were basically selling initially was, you know, fashion, right? And fashion also catered to the upper middle class. And then as soon as we turned into a Lazada clone, we were selling a lot of smartphones because it got a lot of GMV, right? So we were chasing GMV, right? And, but ultimately, like, I, I didn't think that uh, a country like Pakistan, like, for the internet to be relevant for a larger demographic, how many people are you going to try and sell a brand new smartphone to or like a nice designer suit, right? And so when I saw what Nadim was doing in, and, you know, Nadim was also at Zalora at one point, you know? Right. Well, yeah. When I sort of like started watching what he was doing in Indonesia. So Nadim and Gojek for, for the listeners. Yeah, Nadim, Nadim Gojek, yeah. Well, when I started seeing what he was doing there and I started seeing Uber and Kareem start in Pakistan. Mm-hmm. You know, that got me thinking. And Uber and Kareem Pakistan were, were focused on the car category. And I and I I kept meeting some of their leadership, uh, particularly Kareem's. And I, you know, I, I was I was like, when are you gonna start motorbikes? And they had no plans. They had no plans for motorbikes, right? And and motorbikes made sense to me because you know, Pakistan, just like Indonesia or Vietnam, or for that matter, India, they're more two-wheeler motorbikes then there are four-wheeler cars. And if you've got to deliver a person or deliver an e-commerce parcel, you know, or you've got to deliver a pizza, it's got to be on a motorbike. It's not going to be in a car, right? So if you want to, if you're trying to play a, you know, play a supply game where, you know, you're trying to leverage the supply, it's got to be motorbikes. It can't be four-wheeler cars in, um, in these emerging geographies. Now hold that thought. Finding a service solution that helps you keep customers happy can feel impossible. Like trying to remember the name of that guy you literally just met at a networking event. HubSpot's all-new service hub can help, with their service solution part at least. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform. With an AI-powered help desk and chatbot to help you handle your frontline tickets. So you can scale support and drive retention and revenue. We love the sound of those things. Visit HubSpot.com service to learn more. So Munim, just want to double click on that. You know, not many who are tuning in, some of them are American, you know, tuning in, may not understand what it means when you say, you can't do this on a car. Tell us a little bit about, you know, what the landscape is. I mean, Pakistan, and we talk about this a lot, right? It's a huge population. It's 200, going to be 220 million now, I believe. But, you know, that is, you know, not reflective of how many are uh, mobile, connected, you know, how many are Urdu speaking. And by Kia is also, you started it as an Urdu-based app. Tell us a little bit about the landscape here and why you thought motorbikes is the way to go. Yeah. So... So many of these countries, including Pakistan, urban density is very, very high, right? So if you look at Karachi, Karachi is about, some say 20 million, but conservative is 15 million people, right? Mm -hmm. Jakarta is anywhere between 10 and 12 million people as well, right? These cities are huge, right? They're huge metropolitans. And... There's a big population that's that's living in very close proximity. So, you know, there are many pockets in the city where you can't even go in a car, let alone you can't even go in a three-wheeler. You've got to go in on, on a two-wheeler. Like if you've been to Bangkok, yeah. some people have not been to Jakarta and haven't been to Karachi, right? But if you've been to Bangkok, you've got to meander around in these alleys where four-wheelers just don't have access. Mm-hmm. So... So yeah, I mean, motorbikes is is the way of life for 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 many people, and and you know, the epitome of this is for sure Jakarta, but Ho Chi Minh City, you know, that's a city with as many as many two wheeler motorbikes as perhaps the population of that city. So motorbikes run everything this in these cities. 
Yeah, so it's it's essentially infrastructure, and there's a lot more uh, meandering that you can do because of just the the sheer traffic, right? In, in Jakarta, yeah. we do it about how it's about shit all the time. It's a traffic jam everywhere that you go. So definitely a lot more condensed, and, and within the cities as well. So as you were building IKEA, you know, it it's been a couple of years now. You started what 2016, I believe. How has your mm-hmm. yeah we, we we started December 2016. So realistically, we started 2017. You know, right. Um, but yeah, please please proceed with your question. And and how did you evolve? You know, I I've spoken to a couple of your investors, a couple of peers, and one thing that really struck me was one of them said, and you probably know who this is, but I was surprised actually, and I was actually confused by why Bikea didn't die a natural death because you were really going head in with you know the the sort of wars between Uber, Kareem, and there was. A lot of struggle in in first building it up in the first few years, but yet you persisted. Tell us a little bit about this journey here on how you built how how you built IKEA and how has your business changed over the years? Yeah, so when we when we launched, we launched with like a million dollars in seed capital, right? And as soon as basically Kareem, which was the most well funded startup in the Middle East, which ultimately mm-hmm. sold to Uber. And as soon as basically they launched the motorbike category, which they did because they were failing in the three-wheeler category. So they were like, wait a minute, we thought two-wheelers would not work, but clearly Bikea is making it work. I mean, they spent probably a million dollars for the launch of their two-wheeler category, right? So we were fighting against people with very, very deep pockets. And And then Uber jumps in. In the, in the motorbike category as well. But, you know, one thing we realized is that the only thing they have is money, right? That's mm. all they have, right? And you can, you can push all the discounts in the world, right? And you can put all the billboards in the world. But if your product is not comprehensible or easy for the mass audience, both on the supply side and the demand side, right? Mm-hmm. Then you're just driving user behavior, stickiness for greed, right? And the minute you pull those subsidies, your, your supply or your demand is going to vanish, right? And you can keep playing this game of throwing money perpetually, right? But ultimately, any, any product that is local, where the locals are constantly customizing it to meet the product needs of the the audience will win. Mm -hmm. And and I'll give you examples of that. So the first thing we did, one, we knew our app was in Urdu, the local language. Now you'd be like, well, how difficult is it for Uber and Green to have an app in Urdu? What most people don't realize is that we didn't even have a smartphone-based script in Urdu till recently, right? The Arabic script was used, which is a different script to our script, which is more like a Persian script. So that was one problem. So initially when Baikia launched, we would paste images, you know, in Urdu, right? And then we recognized that people couldn't search in their own language. Like, you know, most people in India can't search in their own language either, by the way, just for context, right? Yeah. But in India, they have resolved that because they're, hundreds of languages, you know, they've resolved to make English the, the common language between people from North and the South and for people to communicate with one another. In Pakistan, it's still not English. It's still Urdu, which is our national language. Hmm. And so, so we made the product be, be a catalog-based journey where people would click one, one click at a time to, to, so for example, if you want to enter a destination that you want to go to, Right? right. What do you do in Uber today? You enter where to, but that right. requires you to know how to spell a certain street. Right. Mm. But if you don't know, if you can't spell very well, you'll you, you, you get frustrated. With it. So what we did was we created zones. So we said, okay, you want to go to DHA, which is a section within um, Karachi. Right. Choose the zone within DHA. So I want to go to DHA phase five, that's level two. And then within DHA phase five, which other certain other map location do you want to go to? So it was a click way, 
it was a click, click, click away to right. choosing your destination. Similarly, on the driver app, and this is like hilarious, right? Uber and Kareem spent millions of dollars and they were showing an address, you know, a string address to drivers in English that they couldn't comprehend. Mm. And also in a city where Google's string address was not very accurate, right? Right. When drivers, particularly given that they're not super educated, they understand areas in a city. Like, you know, for example, like they'll understand that you want to go to like, let's take the same example, Karsas. Like there's a zone, there's an area within the city called Karsas. And so they comprehend that you want to generally go towards Karsas, but they won't necessarily comprehend like a particular street within that area because they don't know every street in the city. So small changes like these, which allowed both the supply side and the demand side to comprehend what they were doing. And so what happened, and I'll tell you the story today, we're probably 11 times the size of Kareem bike. You know, we've literally like obliterated them in Karachi, you know? Wow. And I think Uber Moto, Uber Moto does not, almost doesn't exist in Karachi. I think the only city these guys exist in is where their management sits, which is in Lahore, so that when their leadership flies in, you know, they can say, oh, you know, we still have a city. But that's the smallest of the three cities in the country uh, in terms of, you know, digital commerce and ride hailing. So, let them keep the smaller city. Yeah. So, so this is interesting, Muneeb. I mean, you know, definitely the hyper local aspect there is very important. And I think that's why a lot of, in a lot of countries, um, right, there's a reason why Didi in China did a lot better than Uber and finally they gave up and why Grab is expanding so rapidly. But, you know, when, when I reflect on your personal journey, you talked about Deraz and, you know, we all sort of, those of us in venture sort of know this, the rocket internet titles, when you look on it, it's like, oh, yeah, it's kind of questionable. But what they did, which was very smart, is hire a local like yourself to innovate within. Why, you know, with the, the amount of capital that Uber had and Kareem had, couldn't they have done the same thing and then brought the rich insights that someone like you has brought to Bikea to compete? Yeah, but I think, you know, pro- the product is typically made in the headquarters, right? And, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're in the central team, you're going to focus on your core markets. So you're going to optimize the priorities for software development and product for where the bulk of your business is. And the reason why locals ultimately win is because they can tweak their product a lot faster, right? They can get to market. They can do even offline marketing, the kind of BTL uh, intelligence that they can get and drive into their marketing is, 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 is a lot more impactful. So, you know, could they have? Yeah, but, you know, you hardly see anyone really do that in any, in, in any great way today. So I'm sure, listen, that are products like Facebook, WhatsApp, you know, Google, yeah. that are global products. Mm-hmm. But, you know, those, some of those products are visual. So Facebook is a visual product. And it has the network that is hard to break out of, right? But in, in transactional businesses, right? Mm-hmm. What matters is speed to transaction. That's one. Right. Which we also were better at because our supply, we opened our supply up to part-timers. They focused on full-timers. They focused mm-hmm. on clocking 8, 10, 12 hours on, on, on a motorbike. And that was in my opinion, quite stupid because our motorbikes are not like motorbikes in Jakarta or Ho Chi Minh City. They're not nice, comfy Hondas. They're, they're like literally flimsy, $100, $150, you know, motorbikes that look like they're from the 70s, you know, and you cannot sit on one of them for 10 hours. It's impossible. So, so we bet on a supply which you only clock in a couple of hours a day Mm-hmm. We didn't have to pay them a bonus, right? While they, while they were bleeding money, trying to make people, force people to work 10 hours, quit their jobs, yeah. you know, and pay all these crazy bonuses. So, hmm. yeah, you know, I, I think it's hard. It's hard, hard because they, they just can't move fast enough. 
Yeah. So what, what you bring up there, I think, is, is very interesting in terms of the, the global and local. And, and that gives me a very nice segue into the topic of the day, which is, you know, go to group is slated to list later on in, in the United States for evaluation of 35 to 40 billion the rise of a super app. And now instead of sort of the Facebook, you know, with the WhatsApp being customized by the locals uh, to whatever they use, right? I mean, we talk about WhatsApp being used for, you know, in ways that even the people who created WhatsApp didn't foresee it, especially across the emerging markets. And now you have a huge super app that grew sort of from the likes of Indonesia. How do you feel about that? You know, is there a risk there of a player like them threatening your business? I mean, wh- why do you think Gojek won in Indonesia or led in Indonesia, right? Of course, part of that was money, you know, mm-hmm. but part of that was, you know, localization as well, right? So, so you know, when when we look at, you know, so when I look at basically Gojek, I love that business. That's the business that inspired us to start by Kia, right? But when I look at Tokopedia, that's the business that I, I, I sort of wasn't, I was involved in e-commerce prior to basically my writing experience. So when I see them mesh, I'm ecstatic. And why? So these countries are not like China or the United States or India or Brazil. Because in China, you would buy from someone who may be hundreds of miles away. Same in the U.S., Mm-hmm. Same in Brazil, same in India. But if you're in Indonesia, if you're in Jakarta, the probability is when you're buying something in e-commerce, you're most likely buying it from someone in Jakarta because right. these cities are so big and they're concentrated, similar mm-hmm. in Karachi, right? So, so the premise behind even e-commerce delivery being a few days late, okay? Right is a risky premise. Partly also because a lot of these payments are made cash on delivery, which means that the customer can change their mind in two, three days, right? And so if you really want to make e-commerce work, you've got to make it hyper-local. What that means is if I click and I Mm -hmm. buy a cover for my smartphone, right? The reason I'm buying online is because I don't want to go to the hassle of getting on a scooter or getting in a bus, going to the other part of town and buying it. I can. It'll take me 35, 45 minutes. I can. I don't want to, right? Because I don't want to waste my time. But if you tell me I'll either get this today or I'll get this in two to three days, Hmm. my propensity is just go 35, 45 minutes and go buy it, right? And yeah. so what ride hailing solves is ride hailing provides a supply fleet, which is on demand. Someone can go to that mobile shop, buy that smartphone cover and bring it to you in 35, 40 minutes. Save mm. you time. And it's, it's the equivalent experience of you getting it in the same day, you're probably going to get in the same hour, right? Maybe yeah. two hours at max. So I think the future of e-commerce in these geographies, in very, very large, dense urban cities, is in the mesh of e-commerce and ride-hailing. And mm-hmm. you know, this applies to Singapore too, right? Like yeah. if, if you have the propensity to buy something today, versus, you know, buy today and get in three days. Why would you, why would you buy from, from, from Shenzhen in China unless it's at a huge discount, right? right. You buy it only if it's way cheaper. Which they can do as well. And Munib, I really want to dive deeper and come back to that. But now it's time for the next segment. Where we bring on members of the audience from across the globe tuning in here. And today we have calling in all the way from London, someone who's all about turning data into value, a business architect based in London, Ali Somro. Ali, over to you. Well, I'm speaking to somebody about the different ride hailing platforms we have. 
And mm-hmm. a prominent businessman within Kanadar, which is a quite a densely populated business region in Karachi, I asked him why not use uh, some of the other services, and he felt that when he has to move cash from one of his branches to the bank, he feels safer to use by key. And I asked him why, and he said the familiarity of the app and how it's uh, all in Urdu and the drivers they understand the areas rather than ask for addresses makes him feel safer. So kind of just adds into that user experience that you've created. So just on that point that you made about being hyper-local and understanding the local market, I'll go straight into my questions. Your core product is logistics, and it's a bike, predominantly a bike is your medium of providing these transport services. I know you have had some campaigns around this, uh, but how are you planning to kind of scale up and incorporate a vast majority of the population, which is women, onto, onto this platform where, I mean, obviously, Providing transport to women in our country is already a big challenge because it's not safe as such. So how do you plan when you scale up further, as you are at the moment, to incorporate this vast majority of the sector, which I think currently is slightly untapped for you guys? Yeah, so so I think um, if you split this up, right, for transport, we've got to get to a stage where women who feel they should not sit behind a man on a motorbike and travel alone. We've, we've got to get past that mental hurdle, cultural hurdle, and paranoia around safety for women to use Bikea more than they do today. So mostly women do not use Bikea. Having said that, you'll probably read, there's an article from New York Times as well, which talks about you know, women using using Bikea and how that is kind of transforming the way women and so the society thinks about movement, you know, across genders. So I think we can hope that we can build trust for women to know that they're being tracked, know that they can share with their loved ones and still trust sitting with a stranger to move from A to B. So that, you know, there's nothing we can do beyond that because we're not getting into cars. We're not launching the car category. Now, if ever we think of launching the three-wheeler category, that's a category women use, yes. But listen, if you're in the streets, and I hate to say this, but if you're in the streets of Karachi or the streets of Lahore or the streets of basically Rawalpindi, you don't see a lot of women. And that, that's very sad. But, you know, th- th- we've unfortunately as a nation, we've kind of caged them. So now what do you do after you've caged them? What can we do as a business? We can enable them to do commerce, right? And so the payment idea that we have is, is really to enable social commerce sellers, Facebook, Instagram sellers, you know, to be able to transact, send their documents, their parcels, their deliveries, their payments, leveraging our network. Right. And and I think if we can empower them financially or economically, right, we, we, we can help pull them out of the cages that they're in. Right. So it's it's a constant struggle. You know, we even at our organization have made a deliberate effort to to hire the smartest women out there. So for example, our product and engineering is led by a female. Our marketing is led by a female. So we have female leaders, you know, who are also, you know, representing not just by Kia, but what the modern Pakistani woman can do. And we hope that our, our foray into commerce, into payments is going to enable a segment of society which is handcuffed today to be able to be more economically independent. Thanks, Ali. Thanks. And thanks for joining us. Appreciate that. No, you have to go. So thanks so much for that. And Muneeb, obviously, you know, this is a topic I care a lot about. You know that. And I'm glad that you're seeing it as a priority because I think, you know, the independence of uh, women and, and, you know, enabling them through technology will be a huge determining factor here. You know, we, we can't let the digital divide, I think we've talked about this before, you know, the digital divide can, the opportunity of technology 
can help us or divide us. And, and I'm really uh, looking forward to the leadership of folks like yourself to bring us out here to the other side. I've seen in Nepal, actually, there are a couple of um, women that are driving sort of what looks like the tuk-tuks uh, in Thailand, and it's really exciting. Now I have my next question for you coming again from Europe. So you have you know some fans across the globe here from the audience from Luxembourg. I have Marisha Naz who is from Amazon and she leads the uh, private brands for Amazon Nutrition and Healthcare. Over to you, Marisha. Thanks for the introduction, Sarah, and thanks for having me on here. Hi, really nice to meet you and fantastic story. Super, super interesting. My question is around, you know, with super apps generally, I guess there are a couple of like main popular areas, you know, one being transport, the other being financial services, and the third, you know, partnership with, with telcos, all of which um, I think you've spoken about today. All of these industries are heavily regulated, are regulatory driven. And in emerging markets, we have a little bit more risk where regulation changing from drastically from day to day does happen. You know, it's, it's part of the business. It's something that we, those of us who are in that sector have to manage. So I'm curious to know, what is your, what is your mental model on thinking of these regulatory risks as you expand into different verticals to become a super app? I'm curious to know how you think of the risk, how you quantify it, and eventually what is your mental model for managing and mitigating these regulatory risks? Yeah. So. Because of the, the way we think of it, right? So we've got this network. Now the network is profiled. So every first, so we, you know, in, a, in our supply, we've got bronze, silver, gold, diamond, right? What that means is what kind of job they're going to get. Can they collect gas? Will they get a credit for 12 hours? Yes, no, right? So, so we've been, we've been sort of pretty good at, deciding who to give the job to or who to mm. offer the job to, right? Because a lot of the jobs are also picked up by multiple, they're offered to multiple drivers, one of the drivers picks it up. So, so in terms of e-commerce delivery, you know, it already happens in motorbikes, we already do it. But the thing with, with, with our countries is that most of the e-commerce payments are cash and delivery. Now you may say, mm-hmm. oh, they'll eventually become digital. Maybe. I'll tell you why I say that. Right. If in the United States, you had the option to pay after you got the item, mm-hmm. why would you use a card? Why would you Point. Why would you prepay in advance? Right. So the fact that basically cash and delivery has gotten people addicted to after they receive the item is a hard thing to change. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, having said that, People should have the option to prepay partially through a card, through Visa MasterCard or their bank accounts mm-hmm. to, to, to ensure the seller to ship the item. Absolutely. So will we be offering that? Yes, we will. Will we be using the rails of existing you know, payment merchants? Yes. So our strategy is don't try and build a wallet. Okay. The reason you get into regulatory problems is because everyone has been spinning a story around EMI because the reason they wanted to get an EMI is because they want to store money, right? And in storing money, they wanted to become a bank. And the reason they wanted to become a bank is because they wanted to lend. So that was the premise behind these EMIs, you know, and, and, and these licenses. And I'm against that. I'll tell you why I'm against it. Hmm. We have no sh- near-term plans to get into any sort of banking, any sort of lending. Okay, the business that we want to be in is to be able to match two parties, right? Allow them to pay each other immediately, but charge a pay trip. So think of a Visa, Mastercard, or a PayPal for cash. Mm-hmm. So. If you can charge your commission and route the payment immediately, the seller is happy because their cash flow gets a lot better. Right. Right. And the buyer basically can pay on delivery, but the delivery happens in 35 minutes. Right. Mm. So, so, and they can also pay by, by digital uh, cards or ultimately bank accounts, but also cash. So, so, so what we're trying to do is we're just trying to expedite 
the transaction, expedite the receive the receipt of money by the seller, but against a fee. You know, so you know, I don't know too many banks in the world which are worth a trillion dollars, but Visa is, MasterCard is. Tell me about one bank in the world which is worth a trillion dollars. Why would I want to be a bank? Yeah. Now hold that thought. Talking to Loud, hosted by Chris Savage, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. On this podcast, Chris Savage, Wistia CEO and loudest talker, takes you inside the minds of entrepreneurs as they share the hilarious, informative, and most challenging aspects of building more human brands. Everything we love here at Billion Dollar Moves. Now, an episode I loved recently was the one with guest Joe LeMay, jiu-jitsu loving entrepreneur and co-founder of rocket book he talks about how an airplane epiphany took him on a wild ride that started with a shark tank flop but ended with a 50 million dollar exit you know that's our jam listen to it talking too loud wherever you get your podcast Interesting perspective, Muneeb, and thanks, Marisha, for that question. You know, on that point, on not wanting to to be a bank, I reflect on a conversation I tuned into, I believe it was on Bloomberg Quick Take, and they made a comparison about just the rise of fintech solutions in, in China and America. And, you know, in America, it was said that the banks stand to lose something like $43 billion if the fintech solutions approached things the way that a lot of the apps in China has where they essentially in, in a lot of emerging markets leapfrog the need to interface with a bank account or even the enablers, classic enablers like Visa and MasterCard, right? So you think about the transaction uh, that you make, a $100 transaction, call it $97 is what the merchant actually gets and $3 is what you pay in fees. So whether that's Visa, MasterCard, you, you name it. So how do you think about cash on delivery and the unique way that you're approaching things here? Yeah. So let's take a step back. Okay. Banking as a service, I'm a firm believer in. Why? Mm -hmm. If you look at what has evolved in Europe now, the bank that we also use because our holding companies in the Netherlands, the underlying IBAN or international bank account number for this fintech bank that we use is Citibank. So do I believe that the largest banks or the most powerful commercial banks today, you know, should they have banking as a service? Absolutely. Because they've got the licensing, they've got the regulatory approvals. Let it be, be their IBANs. What fintechs need to do in this space is provide the leads, the leads for the deposit holder, the leads for basically um, the, the account management around it. So I think there's value amongst fintechs there, right? Now, when you compare Visa, MasterCard versus Alipay, for example, right. what's the fundamental difference? The fundamental differences in Visa, MasterCard, their fees are probably comparable to Alipay's fees, you know, 0.2, 0.3%, somewhere around that, that range. It's the banks in the middle that basically charge you, charge you, let's say, 2 3%, but the premise behind that charge was actually credit. It was supposed to be credit cards that you're supposed to charge 2.5 or 3% for. And it's criminal that they're charging that on debit cards. You know? Mm -hmm. so, so, so I think if they change that, it's one small change, right? Don't charge those astronomical fees on mm -hmm. debit cards. Credit? Absolutely. You know, you should. Because basically it's not money someone has. So, you know, I, I, I think a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of storytelling going around the world, right? Okay. I think you'll normalize in a few years. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, this concept on cash on delivery, I, I find it interesting. I mean, you know, this concept, it may not be as common in the, the United States and, and more developing countries, but uh, a lot of it also stems from how do we first build trust, right? That's how it started. And I want to talk about trust here and your business because, and, and Nadim from Gojack spoke about this as well, you know, that he started the business when he realized he could actually trust an outsider who may not come across as someone, you know, in, in working in the offices and all that, but who's actually an OJAC that wants to earn a little bit more. And in a country like Pakistan, where there's undoubtedly for outsiders tuning in a lot of hesitation in terms of just, you know, we talked about this, right? Investing, hesitation and in investing in the market. How do you think about building trust? And how do you think about, you know, handing someone in Pakistan 
cash for a product and, and how you building that trust as you roll out your different products here? See, ultimately, it's about your faith assurance that this is being tracked. Right? Mm-hmm. If you have the assurance that anyone that you're engaging with, there's recourse if they fail on the transaction, you know, then, then you will trust, right? Now, the cool thing about ride-hailing is everything's tracked. You'd be surprised, you know, that in a city like Karachi where petty crime, you know, like robbing people of their smartphone on a motorbike was so common, right? Okay. A few years ago. Yeah. Um, still happens off and on, right? Just to, just to steal a smartphone, just rob someone, right? It hardly happens on Bikea. And you'd be like, why? Because the robber knows that the exact location would be tracked. Now, if you hop on the bike, the mobile number, the telecom basic tracking of that passenger would also be tracked. So mm-hmm. tracking solves a lot of it. You know? In terms of cash management, I'll take a step back again. You know? Let's look at the examples of Russia or India mm-hmm. or Saudi Arabia. Let's look at Saudi Arabia. Saudis are some of the, they're the largest e-commerce buyers in the Middle East. When they buy from overseas, they'll charge their card. When they don't have an option to pay by cash and delivery, they'll charge their card. But whenever they have an option to pay by cash and delivery, they'll always choose cash and delivery locally. Why? Because they'll pay after they get the item. Hmm. So I don't think cash on delivery has as much to do about trust as it does on the preference to pay after you get it. Now, well, it's the lack of trust is what I'm getting at, right? The reason why cash on delivery started in, in countries like ours, and I'm talking Malaysia here, more emerging markets, was because compared to in the United States, like Amazon, right? I, I have no hesitation making all these purchases, even if it's high value, because I know the return policy is so good. No matter what, I, I have that trust there. Whereas in Asia, emerging markets, there's a lack of trust. But eventually, what I'm getting at is eventually, don't you think, Manit, that it will move over just as how, you know, the aunties, the uncles in Asia are now trusting, getting into someone, you know, the the premise of your business is trust in technology. So don't you feel like Bikea Cash over time will somehow cannibalize as you continue to build the trust sort of reputation, right? Doesn't it, you know? Well, that's the plan, right? I mean, the plan is exactly that. The plan is to acquire users by cash and have those users use other services as well, get mm. them to be sticky, offer them a digital solution as well, and stick to your platform. Ultimately, it's about user acquisition right. Right? and retention. Like if I just exclude all options that a customer wants today, one, I wouldn't even acquire this user, and two, I wouldn't even retain this user. And I'm we're, we're, we're paranoid about cohorts, right? So it's a step towards so, mm-hmm. a sticky user long-term. Got it, got it. And I, I, you know, I appreciate the fact that you don't want to be a wallet. I know there's uh, very strong views on whether this should be the way forward or not. And you talk about retention as being one of the key things in, in your business. Unfortunately, right, COVID-19 hit, you've had to furlough quite a few folks. How are you thinking about retention from both uh supply and demand side as you emerge from this uh, crisis that we're all, you know, sort of working through? Yeah. So on the supply side, listen, I mean, these people are on your network because they're trying to make, it's a gig economy. They're trying to make extra money. Mm -hmm. And if they're working permanently on your platform, that means, that means basically they can't get a job anywhere else. And as far as Bikea is concerned, we don't necessarily like or love that set of a driver. We'd rather have a driver who already has a job somewhere else and plugs in two hours in the morning, two hours in the evening on our platform. Why? Because the supplemental income allows us to, to one, give this person more money, and the way we think of this is how much will this person make in an hour, not in a month? Mm-hmm. Because ultimately, 
this whole supply side is based upon earnings per hour. Now you can you can increase the earnings per hour by giving a bonus, you know. But your goal should be to give enough jobs in an hour, right? For the two hours that someone's on, or one hour that someone's on, if you can give multiple jobs, mm-hmm. right, you don't need to pay a bonus, right? You basically allow the person to earn their way into, into more income. And so how do you do that? You do that through this super app strategy. Okay. People who come to your platform, to your app, come from multiple demographics. They may come from a demographic that can only afford to hop on the back of a motorbike to get from A to B. But they can also come from a demographic which is slightly more affluent, which is a demographic that can afford food delivery. The reason I say afford food delivery is because in these emerging geographies, you've got to pay at least a dollar or maybe less than a dollar for delivery fees. So if the average order value is very low, the propensity for people to pay that delivery fee is going to be very little. So unless people are ordering in bunches, groups of two two to three, you know, Mm -hmm. the average order value doesn't rise. So, So now you've got a middle class in there. And then when you throw in payments as well, now you've got the whole gamble of it, right? So all these leads all these leads fall to the same supply, right. right? And so, yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's, uh, yes, it's a two-sided marketplace. When I think of a super app side, a unified, unified basically network, it's actually on our supply side, not necessarily on the demand side. Right. And, and how has this pandemic uh, made you rethink the way you're approaching your business? And of course, you know, taking into account as well, the recent news that despite a pandemic, right, GoTo is going ahead. And, you know, there's the word in Indonesian, Raksasa, this is the newest behemoth monster that's coming into the market here, the largest technology group that started as, you know, Nadim and, and a couple of guys, you know, coming up with something to innovate. You know, just like the SARS was a pivotal change in use in digital adoption in China. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, but fortunately for us, COVID has been that lever to drive user behavior towards digitizing. So it's been great. You know, we yes, we, you know, during a complete lockdown, you know, motorbike taxi was banned for a short period of time. Yeah. But ever since it's turned on, that business has more than doubled. And then and then your commerce business is also growing, right? And so the reason why they're going public is because these businesses are booming, you know? And, and so it's also a great time to raise money. So, so, so I think, you know, all the power to them. Right. And is that in the horizon for you in the near term? To- going public? To grow in, in, in the similar way of a full super app and potentially, yeah, you know, raise even more. Yeah, absolutely. You know, who are we inspired by? Inspired by Gojek, we're inspired by Grab, Meetwan. Meet, like no, no one talks about Meetwan. Meetwan is the holy grail of it, right? So, right. so we're constantly studying Meetwan. We love the kind of, you know, micro, micro level advertising that they do you know, the reviews and the community, you know, building that they do. And so, mm-hmm. so I think they drive, one thing that Meetwan does very well, by the way, which we all need to learn from, right. is, is frequency and repeat usage and user-generated content. Grab doesn't have user-generated content. Gojek doesn't. Tokopedia has to a certain extent. Yeah, We're trying to figure out how do we generate Meetwan-style user-generated content to get that user to keep coming back. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we have we have plans. <laughs> we have plans. I love that. Always love hearing that. And what what do you think will be your challenges here as we wrap up and go into the next segment? Yeah, the challenge is the challenge is basically, you know, around our product. For example, when we're doing food, we're launching, we're launching a, a food category as well in Baiki, right? Mm-hmm. How do you differentiate the product to not go head on with someone with a lot of money to burn? Yeah. So, for example, in our market, this food panda, 
But what does Food Panda have? They got money to burn in discounts. That's one, you know. Two, they've got these, they've got this network which operates in, in, in like a closed radius. And so, you know, where, of course, you experiment and you, know, you tweak and then you get a product out and you make certain changes. What we don't want to do is we don't want to drive adoption through selling below cost, which is mm -hmm. what most companies do, right? Yeah. We want and we hope that the product that we create, the journeys that we create are a discovery journey. So, for example, we're going to focus on street food, on discovering street food, on being able to call the restaurant directly, you know, leave a voice note directly. We want that communication to happen, right? Mm. We want the restaurants to be our friends. Don't think of us as enemies. So how do we do that? It's complex, but we're going to keep listening to them and we're going to keep building products that they love. Love it. Great. And that brings me to a nice segue to the billion dollar question. So eight questions, Manip. Say whatever comes to mind succinctly and, and respond to the eight questions here. So are you ready? Sure, sure. <laughs> Number one, when you think of the word successful, who do you think of and why? Ray Dalio. Why? Ray Dalio, uh, Ray Dalio was, uh, so the, lar what, the largest hedge fund in the world was Bridgewater. Yeah. And Ray Dalio led it. He built it from scratch. And what he leaves behind today is not just a fantastic book called The Principles, but he's a mentor. I follow him on Twitter. I listen to everything he says. I hope that if I'm that rich, I don't know if I can be, I am as humble and as good a mentor as he is. Great choice. Common misconceptions about you? That I have money and that I live in my daddy's house. <laughs> <laughs> You're not living in your daddy's house now, are you? No. <laughs> Highest high. Highest high? Getting my LASIK surgery done. I was minus seven oh. both eyes. Wow. When did you do that? Long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Lowest low. Almost running out of money. We almost died. We almost died. Had it not been for um, someone to really come in and bail us, we almost mm -hmm. died once. And that was heartbreaking because... We knew that the only thing we didn't have was money because mm. we, we had a great product. We had a great team. We had everything going for us. But investors many a times get blown away by the paranoia of these gorillas, not recognizing that every one of them has an Achilles heel. Yeah. Love that. And, and, you know, I noticed you use the word paranoia a lot. I think that is uh, definitely one of the things that stands you out as a founder because you're obsessing over what next, right? And, and I, I've yeah. heard this from a couple of your investors as well. Munib is the one guy that I've heard say paranoia a lot, and you've used that in this conversation a lot. Best advice you've been given? Best advice? A friend of mine, basically, when I was at, at one of the lowest ebbs in my career, you know, he said, you know, even if you're drowning, Munib, give it one last shot. Mm. And I say that to me, I say that to myself almost every week now. You know, even if you're drowning, give it one last shot. Persistence. Favorite tool hack for productivity? Ding Talk and Calendly. So for those of you who don't know, Ding Talk is owned by the Alibaba Group. It's a, it's a clone of Slack. But the cool thing mm. about it, it has voice notes and has had voice notes way before Slack did. So, and it's free, so. <laughs> Great, your biggest fear? Living a meaningless life, a life without a purpose. What does that mean? How can you wake up in the morning and not know, not have something to fret about? How can you go to sleep at night and not dream about work? What a mean, I think it'd be a meaningless life if I don't have something to stress about. Okay. And finally, you've got a couple of kids that are looking to you as role model, as a role model in their life. What are the qualities, three qualities that you would want them to have as they move forward in their life into adulthood? Yeah, so I mean, you're, you're never always going to be the smartest person right, uh, in a room. So, so I think persistence mm -hmm. will train you to be the best skilled person in that room. So keep at it. Grit, 
great is, is, is the first thing I would say. The second thing is, and you know, I, I'll bite on my tongue many a times on this, but don't, <laughs> don't immediately respond to things. Like don't immediately respond to emails. Don't snap back, mm. especially if you're, if, if, if you're irritated, like always, always let it, let it settle, respond back in 12 hours or something, you know? Yeah. In this world of chats and social media, many a times we'll immediately respond back and it's not necessarily good. The third is your life is public. Whether you like it or not, Google, Facebook, everyone knows where you live, every meter that you move, right? Everything that you say, everything that you write is, a, is, is public. Recognize that and curate, curate your, you know, your diary. This is your digital diary. Mm. And that, that's interesting. And I want to throw this last one in as we wrap up here. You know, I've, I've heard you speak about the digital side of things and the afterlife that we actually have, which is, which is your third point. You know, the fact that we are now being watched in some way in the afterlife of Munit Mir. When you look back, what would be the legacy that you want to leave behind? Yeah, in some way or the other, if, if, if you're remembered for contributing something good and helping a large set of people live a better life, either economically or in any other form. If, if, whether you're a scientist, you know, an inventor, a tech entrepreneur, a social um, you know, a worker, if you have enabled not a handful of people, if you've enabled many people, you know, ideally thousands of people, if you've enabled them, you can rest in peace because we're all going to go, listen, no one knows if there is an afterlife or not. Right? You know, you should just go in peace. Love that. And what a great way to end. I mean, Muneeb, thank you so much for taking this time really to chat through everything from the challenges of, of going into a super app, the strategies of emerging markets, and, and really some of the challenges there and your deepest fear of leaving a meaning, meaningless life. You know, there's been so much that you've shared with us here today. I'm so thankful for your time. And I'm excited, Muneeb, for the thousands and millions of lives that you will impact and the legacy that you will leave. Muneeb, thanks so much for joining so us much. today. <laughs> great chatting with you as always take care yeah great all right thanks Manit. and thanks so much for tuning in this week you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow our socials at sarah chen global to get the latest news on the show i'm sarah chen and you've been listening to billion dollar moves <laughs>